this week, the broken heart syndrome, a study about stress-induced cardiomyopathy, and a groundbreaking trial in type 2 diabetes that shows a mortality benefit. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by my friend Rebecca Stovall, who is also a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Hey, Rebecca, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you, Amol? Doing really well. Good. Um, so Rebecca and I are going to be talking about two topics as always, and then doing our good stuff segment at the end, bringing you several short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So before we jump into our articles today, Rebecca, we're going to be introducing some new content. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be sprinkling in some new short segments. And this week, we're featuring something that we call a clinical encounter. Jennifer Peng, a medical student at the University of Toronto and our creative director at the Rounds Table, is going to talk to us about Lyme disease. Take it away, Jennifer. Thanks, Amal. This week's clinical encounter is with Lyme disease. Lyme disease has been a controversial subject for quite some time, and with an incidence rate of 1 in 100,000 Canadians, it often proves to be quite a difficult diagnostic challenge. So here's the breakdown on Lyme disease. There are three clinical stages. Early localized disease that is characterized by erythema migrans, the classic bullseye pattern rash at the site of the tick bite. The rash is rarely found on hands and feet, instead they're found near the armpits, groin, back of the knees, or at the belt line, as these are areas that naturally impede the tick's forward motion. They may not be painful, but can be itchy and hot to the touch. Early disseminated disease is characterized by multiple rashes, neurological findings in 15% of patients, such as bilateral or unilateral cranial nerve palsies, especially of the facial nerve, and cardiac findings in 8% of patients. Late disease can develop months to years after the initial infection and is commonly associated with arthritis involving one or more large joints, usually the knee, and neurological problems like encephalopathy or polyneuropathy. Other manifestations may resemble a viral syndrome such as fatigue, anorexia, headache, neck stiffness, myalgias and arthralgias, and fever. Because these symptoms can be so nonspecific, Lyme disease can be overlooked on the differential, especially outside endemic areas. Upper respiratory or gastrointestinal signs are uncommon in Lyme and may point to an alternate diagnosis. In endemic areas, patients with erythema migrans and a recent source of exposure should be started on antibiotic treatment without the need for blood tests. For patients without erythema migrans or those who do not recall having a tick bite, the CDC recommends a two-step procedure. The first step is a screening assay, and if positive or equivocal, a more specific Western immunoblot test is followed. Serology combined with Western blot has a sensitivity of 50 to 75% and a specificity of 99 to 100%. Keep in mind that false negatives can occur during early disease before patients develop a sufficient antibody response, making the false negative rate of serology alone 32% in early disease. Treatment of early localized and disseminated disease involves two to four weeks of doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefiroxime therapy. For a list of known endemic areas in Canada, you can visit healthycanadians.gc.ca. That's it for this installment of Clinical Encounters. 
If you have a condition that you would like to hear about in the future, you can tweet us at roundstable with the hashtag clinicalencounters. Okay, Rebecca, let's dive right in. Our first paper today is a study about stress-induced or Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. So Rebecca, tell me about this study. Sure. So this was a multinational, multi-center observational study uh, looking at um, patients with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy from 1998 to 2014. It was the first uh, study of its kind um, to really try and characterize the clinical features of this uh, entity, which was only described in 1990. So Rebecca, why did you choose this paper? So the reason I picked this paper um, was for, you know, a couple of different reasons. The the first is that Takotsubo cardiomyopathy um, is actually a fairly new, newly described disease entity and really only came about uh, in, in 1990. Um, but it has a reasonably high incidence of about 6,000. Yeah, there was about a prevalence of, there were about 6,000 people with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy in 2012 in the United States. Okay, so extra, maybe 600, 700 patients in Canada per year. But we certainly talk about it, think about it a lot on the internal medicine and cardiology services. And that was what I was going to say. I mean, the real reason, if we're going to get down to it, is because it's probably every internist's favorite disease entity, you know, broken heart syndrome. It's kind of, uh, it has a an appeal unto its own. So tell me about Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. What is it? So Takotsubo cardiomyopathy um, is a disease state where there's transient systolic and diastolic dysfunction um, and a, you know, variety of wall motion abnormalities um, presenting in a, a manner similar to people with acute coronary syndromes. And so I guess it's a diagnostic dilemma sometimes trying to decide whether this person is having a heart attack or this Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. And you mentioned it's called broken heart syndrome. So what was our previous understanding of the cause of this condition? Sure. So this seemed to be a condition that happened in, you know, elderly women who sustained emotional trauma. That was kind of the idea. So, you know, you you had a broken heart and you came in with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Okay. And so uh, tell me about this study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. How did they get data for this study and what did they do? Sure. So um, the International Takotsubo Registry was established um, and collected data on patients with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy uh, from 25 cardiovascular centers in nine different countries around the world, uh, including Europe and North America. Uh, What did we learn by characterizing this disease by following Takotsubo patients? So tell me about how do they present to, to medical attention? So the registry um, enrolled 1,750 patients, most of whom were women, um, as we were going to, ex- as we expected. And most patients presented with chest pain, um, almost three quarters of, of them, actually. Of the remaining patients, uh, symptoms included shortness of breath and syncope. Okay. And so what were the triggers for these uh, presentations? What triggered their chest pain? So this I thought was actually really interesting, especially given that we sort of had this conceptualization that it was an emotional uh, event that would trigger Takotsubo. So 36% of patients had physical triggers um, as 
a cause of their Takotsubo, including things like respiratory failure, being post-operative or having had a recent fracture, or even central nervous system uh, conditions like strokes, uh, seizures, uh, and subarachnoid hemorrhages. Interestingly, only 28% had an emotional trigger, and that was actually the same number of patients who had no identifiable trigger for this. Okay, so when this does happen, I think classically the teaching certainly that I learned in medical school about Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is that it causes apical ballooning. The heart becomes larger at the apex. Is that the only way it presents? No. In fact, there were four different types of Takotsubo. So most people um, did have the apical type, that sort of classic type that we we think about. Um, But about 15% of patients uh, had ballooning in the mid-ventricular area. And... 2% of patients had basal dysfunction, whereas about 2% actually only had focal wall abnormalities as well. Okay. What about biomarkers? So do they get elevated troponin? Do they get elevated creatine kinase? So it was actually very interesting because, you know, we know that it's hard to differentiate uh, acute coronary syndrome from Takotsubo. And part of the reason is that Takotsubo does often come with elevated troponins. The magnitude of the troponin elevation on average seems to be smaller with Takotsubo than with with acute coronary syndrome, although that's not always the case. Um, however, CK, creatine kinase, isn't el- typically elevated in Takotsubo. It's not elevated. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And what about ECG changes? Yeah, so um, in Takotsubo, uh, they were... Uh, ECG changes were common. Uh, They were more likely to have ST elevations and QT prolongation uh, and less likely to have ST depression. Okay, so tell me about the clinical course of the disease. Sure. So in the short term, after about 60 days, the majority of patients had, had a recovery of their LV ejection fraction back to normal. And so it started off depressed at Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. So on admission, the ejection fraction was around 40% on average, um, but then normalized. Okay. And so what about short-term adverse outcomes? About 20% of patients had a serious in-hospital complication, including things like ventricular tachycardia, ventricular thrombus formation, and ventricular rupture. So like pretty bad adverse outcomes. Um, They also had an increased risk of MI and stroke early on. So putting those two things together, there's a pretty significant 20% or so possibility of having a a pretty bad outcome. But for the 80% who do okay, their heart basically returns to normal. Absolutely. And so then what about long-term outcomes? Mm -hmm. So this was a, a great study because it was able to follow patients Uh, long-term. And um, what they found was that sort of on average, there was about a 6% rate uh, per patient year of death from any cause and a 10% rate per patient year of major cardiac or cerebrovascular event. So afterwards, even despite the fact that most people regained normal LV function. And is there anything that can be done to 
help improve patient outcomes? So this is an observational study, so we can't draw any firm conclusions. But a propensity matched analysis was done and found that um, the use of ACE inhibitors actually seemed to improve one-year survival for these patients, uh, whereas beta blockers had no effect, which was surprising to me um, because I had always been taught that this was due to a catecholamine surge, and perhaps it's not. Yeah, so that's an interesting hypothesis generating kind of thing that maybe down the line they could test with yeah. an actual trial. Um, and certainly being the best evidence for now, if you ever see a patient with Takotsubo, make sure they're on an ACE inhibitor, 100%, I guess. hundred percent. That's what I think. Rebecca, what did we learn about Takotsubo cardiomyopathy from this study? What, what are your takeaway points? So things that I learned from this study are that certainly um, Takotsubo is a reversible cardiomyopathy that affects women more than men. Um, I learned that physical triggers are more common than emotional triggers, and you may not even find a trigger at all. And I learned that I should not be treating these patients, or I probably shouldn't be treating these patients with beta blockers, but perhaps ACE inhibitors would be reasonable. Great. Thanks so much. Our second study is the MPA-REG trial, which was a randomized control trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that empagliflozin reduces mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes who are at a high risk of having cardiovascular disease. I'm impressed on how you said that. Thank you. Then <laughs> hopefully will be the last time I will say the word empagliflozin. <laughs> All right. So I'm all same question you asked me. Why did you choose this paper? Yeah. I mean, I think I chose this paper because we are all aware that diabetes and cardiovascular disease are very important causes of death. What some clinicians may not be aware of, but I think we should be aware of, is that despite many studies involving tens of thousands of patients with type 2 diabetes, to date, there is no convincing evidence that glucose-lowering therapies reduce cardiovascular events and death. So you want to just take a second and pause on that? Like, can you believe, imagine how much effort we pour into controlling blood sugars in type 2 diabetics with patients. And yet, at best, the current literature suggests that there's a modest benefit to glucose-lowering therapies after prolonged follow-up. So really, you know, not a very strong evidence base for what we are pouring an awful lot of, you know, healthcare effort into. Mm -hmm. So the reason for doing this study is, it is the first demonstration of a glucose-lowering therapy that shows mortality benefit in type 2 diabetic patients. Yeah, so what is epagliflozin? That was close. Close. You didn't have enough as much practice as I did. <laughs> so empagliflozin and all the other flozins um, are inhibitors of sodium glucose co-transporter 2, or SGLT2, and these decrease renal glucose reabsorption. So they prevent the kidneys from reabsorbing glucose, and thus glucose is excreted in the urine. So one of the really interesting things about this drug is that it actually clears glucose from the body, which is quite different from most of the other glucose-lowering therapies, which either you know promote insulin secretion or insulin sensitivity or something. But this actually gets rid of glucose from the body entirely, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so how did they do this study? So this was a large multi-site randomized control trial. They included type 2 diabetic patients 
who were at high risk of cardiovascular outcomes um, and who had established cardiovascular disease. So they had a bunch of very specific definitions that required like an entire appendix to explain. But effectively, it was patients who had a history of MI, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, or coronary artery disease established through angiography. They also needed to have a hemoglobin A1C of between 7 and 10, roughly. They randomized these patients to three groups, placebo, or two groups with the treatment drug, one at a 10 milligram dose and one at a 25 milligram dose. For the first 12 weeks, they instructed all of the care providers for these patients to make no adjustments to the background diabetes medications. So basically for the first 12 weeks, what they were trying to see is introducing this drug, what effect did it have on glucose lowering as opposed to all the other drugs that the patient was on. So that was the purpose of the first 12 week phase. And then thereafter, they encouraged the patient's doctors to target normal hemoglobin A1C as they would for all their other patients. So they could intensify glucose therapy as necessary and, you know, treat patients as necessary. Okay. And so what was the primary outcome here? So the primary outcome was a composite outcome of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. And so don't keep me in suspense. What did they find? Yeah. So they included about just over 7,000 patients in this study Uh, the median treatment time and follow-up was almost three years. The average age of patients was 63 years old. Uh, They were about 70% male, 70% white, and they had a hemoglobin A1C at baseline of about 8%. Most of these patients were on good other therapies for managing cardiovascular risk. So about 80% of the patients were on a statin at baseline and about 95% were on some kind of blood pressure medications. So when they adjudicated the outcome at the end of the study after about three years, they found that in this combined primary endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes or heart attacks or strokes, in the treatment group, the primary outcome was 10.5%. And in the control group or the placebo group, it was 12.1%. So that's an absolute difference of uh, 1.6%, which was a significant difference to show that the drug was superior to placebo. They also specifically looked at death from any cardiovascular cause or death from any cause. So for death from cardiovascular cause, in the treatment group, it was 3.7%. And in the placebo group, it was 5.9%. So I know that's like a lot of numbers that I just threw at you. The key point here is that if you look at death from cardiovascular cause, the number needed to treat was 45. So for every 45 patients uh, treated with the drug, you saved one cardiovascular death. And similarly, when you look at death from any cause, the number needed to treat is 38. So for every 38 patients treated for three years, you save one death from any cause. That's a pretty... Good number needed to treat. That is a very massive uh, effect size. Absolutely. For a a trial like this, it's incredibly impressive. Absolutely. So the one point to make is that, so I talked about that combined primary outcome. In fact, it was the reduction in cardiovascular death that drove the difference in that primary outcome. So it wasn't that there was a difference in the rates of heart attack or stroke, but that there was a difference in mortality that was driving the difference. So certainly a very impressive and meaningful outcome. 
Most definitely. So were there any differences in glycemic control between the two groups? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I mentioned that the hemoglobin A1C for these patients started out at 8% on average. That first 12-week window told us about the effectiveness of this drug in lowering uh, glucose in the diabetic patients. And what you found was that the hemoglobin A1C in the placebo group did not change. And the hemoglobin A1C in the treatment group went down to about 7.4%. So certainly did reduce. Um, and that difference was statistically significant. So certainly the first point to make is that this drug is effective in lowering uh, glucose. One point I want to make, sort of as a commentary about that, is that this could conceivably have resulted in some unblinding of the patients um, mm -hmm. at about 12 weeks. Like if you knew at 12 weeks that your patient's hemoglobin A1C had dropped and you hadn't changed anything else, you might, the the clinicians caring for the patients may have become unblinded to the yeah. um, to the study drug. So, um, you know, given that the placebo group did not have a change in hemoglobin A1C, whereas the uh, the experimental group did, um, any possibility that this is related to um, actually just better glycemic control instead of the drug itself? Yeah, so two points about that. The first is I what I just told you about was the 12-week window where there was a big difference. When you look at the end of the trial, so closer to three years, the placebo group's hemoglobin A1C was still 8%. So imagine a flat line. Mm -hmm. Their hemoglobin A1C really didn't improve. And the empagliflozin group's hemoglobin A1C, which bottomed out at about 7.4, then started drifting back up to roughly about 7.8% towards the end of the study. So, you know, at the end of the trial, the difference was really, you know, very relatively small between the two groups in terms of uh, glycemic control. I think this raises another question, which is why was the glycemic control not better in the placebo arm? Um, and I'm not sure if this points to the realities of caring for diabetic patients, and it's just hard to move glycemic control. Um, and I'm also not sure if this is really a weakness of the study, because you asked a very important question, which is, do we think that this effect is from glycemic control, or is it an effect of the drug for reasons other than glycemic mm -hmm. control? My response is based on the previous literature. So the previous literature tells us that glycemic control, while may be certainly beneficial for microvascular complications of diabetes, hasn't really been associated with better macrovascular outcomes, at least not convincingly. Some studies have, have started to show that, but it's not you know, been established in the literature. So that's one point, which is that I, you know, gl glucose lowering doesn't seem to be like the only driver of cardiovascular benefit. Um, and the second point is that the differences over the duration of this study between the placebo group and the treatment group in glucose levels was actually not that dramatic. So do you really believe that you have a, a mortality benefit for every 38 patients as a result of a hemoglobin A1C difference of like 0.3% at the end of the study? I think probably not. Probably not. And so I think really what this study tells us is that this drug uh, is shown to have cardiovascular benefit. And, you know, I'm not sure why that is. Interesting. Did the authors of the study postulate the reasons that this may be? Yeah, of, of course they did. <laughs> so their inference was that the mechanisms behind the cardiovascular benefits of the drug were 
multidimensional, and they comment on uh, some other studies of this drug that showed that it changes arterial stiffness. It it has changes on uh, cardiac oxygen demand. It has maybe cardiorenal effects. Um, and they talk about uh, changing in visceral adiposity. So there's all these like, you know, maybe pleiotropic mm -hmm. effects. Um, one of the things that I wonder is whether it's a diuretic effect. Uh, you know, this is causing a glucose-induced diuresis. Um, and maybe maybe that has some benefit as well. Very so, interesting. Yeah. So what are your take-home points from this study? Are you going to be prescribing empagliflozin for everybody? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I've never actually yet seen empagliflozin prescribed, so I wonder if it's even approved. Um, the one drug that is like this that I have seen many patients starting to be on is canigaflozin. I think I would prescribe this drug to patients who have type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease uh, because certainly all the evidence suggests we should. I'll make two small points about safety. So one uh, commonly quoted side effect of this increase in glucose in your urine is increased urinary tract infections. And there, in this trial, there was evidence that there was slightly more urosepsis um, in the patients in the treatment group at a rate of 0.4% versus 0.1% in the uh, placebo group. So low rates. It seems like it's overall a safe drug, at least from these preliminary, preliminary studies. So my takeaway point is that empagliflozin is associated with cardiovascular mortality benefit and all-cause mortality benefit in diabetic patients who have established cardiovascular disease. Let's move on to our good stuff segment. All right. Rebecca, tell me what short and sweet recommendation from the world of science and medicine caught your attention this week. Absolutely, Amol. So, um, I, you know, I'd be surprised if not uh, everybody has heard about this, but NASA put out a release this week talking about how they found evidence of actual liquid water causing channels uh, to be formed on Mars. Um, and so this is kind of exciting because, of course, if there's water, there is the possibility of potentially life forms on Mars. Very interesting. I have to say I saw the headline, but I didn't actually get the time to read through the whole article. So yeah. thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> um, my recommendation this week is hashtag day of diabetes. Hmm. So there's a person by the name of Christopher Snyder, whose Twitter handle is at I am underscore Spartacus, who has type one diabetes. And he writes a lot about his life with diabetes online. And one of the things that he started doing was called day of diabetes, where he tweeted everything that related to his diabetes for a 24 hour period. And so then he sort of crowdsourced this idea and they did a hashtag day of diabetes where 276 people with diabetes tweeted their diabetes experience for 24 hours, which ended up being about 1500 tweets and got, you know, millions of Twitter impressions. And I just think it's a really neat thing to search. So search the hashtag day of diabetes, scroll through and see sort of what a day in the life of a diabetic patient is like. Very interesting. Thanks, Amol. Okay, thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> Pleasure to chat with you. Uh, as always, I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. It's been great. Thanks. <laughs>